Sydney Allen Ash, and you're listening to Toenails, a podcast about running and also not about running. Typhoon Vamco has caused extensive damage in the Philippines, flooding many parts of Luzon, the largest and most populated island. As the impacts of climate change are showing us, the fabricated structures separating us from the Earth are literally and figuratively collapsing. Typhoon Vamco is the 21st cyclone to hit the Philippines this year and the most deadly. Roads become rivers, homes become flattened land, and whole coastal towns have been rendered completely uninhabitable by natural disasters. Mother Nature is effectively reminding us that our boundaries don't mean shit. Has been opened up to simply let out all of the water that's been collected in the water basin there. It's been overwhelmed by a lot of water, a lot of rain has been dumped on the Philippines, on the main island of Luzon. So, to take it back for a second, I know this is a running podcast, and I honestly did set out to make an episode about the access to the outdoors and trail running. I swear I did. But after researching and speaking with Indigenous and diasporic women who have a really strong relationship with nature, I think I need to start this story where it begins. With the land. So don't worry, we'll get to those equally important questions about who has access to the outdoors, to the land in future episodes. But today we're going to take it back to the drawing board with a more foundational question. What does the outdoors even mean? For hundreds of years, we have maintained a dichotomy between humans and nature. The outdoors and the indoors the wild and the civilized. And to clarify, by we or our, I mean my ancestors, which are, for the most part, Western Europeans and colonial and immigrant settlers. We've understood the wilderness as our domain, a place to control and subdue. And this is not limited to the trees and the rivers. This perspective also includes whole cultures of people who appear to interact with nature in a way that furthers our belief that they are wild and we are civilized, that they are doing it wrong and we are somehow doing it right. So our reckoning of trail running, the outdoors industry, and really the environmental movement as a whole needs to start here. But before we do that, I want to begin by sharing a really beautiful poem by Lila June, an indigenous environmental scientist, doctoral student, educator, community organizer, and musician of Navajo, Cheyenne, and European lineages. This poem was first introduced to me by one of our guests on this episode, Maya Anton. The old ones say we do not own the land much less the songs, much less the symbols gifted to us by the star nation. Who can own the only thing worth having? Who can own God?
The moment you think you own it is the moment it disappears, slipping through your fingers like holy water. You cannot hold it. You can only be held by it. It cannot be owned. You can only pretend to own it, just like you pretend to own your own flesh and bone. But ultimately, even that, you cannot take with you on the soul's journey home. It is worth reminding ourselves of the simple fact that what we believe shapes what we see. Even Western science, this ostensibly objective discipline, has, in fact, been swayed. In hindsight, this idea of us as highly rational beings capable of unbiased assessment has not exactly held up. What I'm saying is this, look, we've made some mistakes. We've ran with some things that probably could have benefited from a third opinion, you know, someone who was not just another powerful white guy. And, you know, what better time than in the final month of 2020, a year of much belated reckonings, to take a second look at the decisive scientific moments that got us into this objectively shitty relationship with nature in the first place. Carolyn Merchant wrote an amazingly thorough book on just this topic, about the influence of patriarchy during the scientific revolution and the stubbornly resilient ecological ideas that came out of it. Throughout a lot of this episode, you will hear me paraphrasing her nuanced and thoughtful work done in this space. If you want the real deal, which you should, go look for The Death of Nature, Women, Ecology, and the Scientific Revolution, written in 1976. There are free PDFs online. In the first of my paraphrases of Miss Merchant, I want to clarify that similar to her book, my focus is to explore the social shifts that have shaped our relationship with nature. To do that, throughout this episode, we're not looking so much at the science itself, but rather the way that a scientific idea is transformed by society, or the way that society has been transformed by it. See, at any given age, an array of scientific ideas exist, and some of these, for unarticulated or even unconscious reasons, seem plausible to society. We accept them, while others do not. And so some ideas spread while others die out. Occasionally, when groups of influential ideas or ideas created by those with influence coalesce into a critical mass, these movements largely dictate the realm of what is possible so that some ideas assume a more central role in social consciousness while others move to the periphery. And it's out of these shifts that cultural transformations occur. Ah. So for this episode, I'm going to tell you one such story of transformation that sparked my interest. It is a well-worn tale, but I've dug up a bit of a twist from the margins of history and recovered it here for your listening pleasure. You're welcome.
There are three acts in this story, and interwoven amongst them are the stories from women who embody a more harmonious relationship with nature, one that I think we should aspire to. I'm interested in their stories because I am generally interested in those who refuse dominant expectations. I find their nose generative. They are not just rejecting something, but actively inspiring new ways of being. I like to contemplate the anatomy of refusal, to pull a phrase from Jenny O'Dell. And I'm drawn to those who do the same. For example, I love Jack Halberston in the intro to The Undercommons with Fred Moten, saying, the wild beyond is paved with refusal. I love that. And Robin Wall Kimmerer in Braiding Sweetgrass, who I will also quote quite often, says, refusal to participate is a moral choice. These ideas resonate with me because we are so clearly not in right relation with the earth, to paraphrase from a poem from a Hopi elder that my friend Pam showed me. And contemplating how we change that relationship is important. Saying no is simply not enough, per Naomi Klein. What are we saying yes to? What does the wild beyond look like? What are the moral choices we are leaning into? This reminder of our agency is critical because the patterns of exclusion we see in things like trail running or hiking are a result of our basic values and expectations towards nature. Nothing will change if we do not first change those beliefs. And while so much this year has felt out of our control, we do have a choice in what we believe. So we should choose wisely. Act one. In Europe, between the 16th and 17th centuries, the image of an organic cosmos with a living earth at its center gave way to a mechanistic worldview in which nature was seen as inert and passive, something to be dominated and controlled by humans. While there are many things that shaped this machine image, we can largely give credit to a little old thing called the scientific revolution. The scientific revolution, for those who don't know, was a series of events that began in Europe in the early 1600s and marked the emergence of early modern Western science. This transition was summarized by William Wool, aka the guy who coined the word scientist, as a shift from an implicit trust in the internal powers of man's mind to a professed dependence upon external observation, and from an unbounded reverence for the wisdom of the past to a fervid expectation of change and improvement. In hindsight, this is one of those definitive moments where it was real clear, we really thought we knew some shit. During this revolution in thinking, a view of nature emerged which saw the environment as a machine rather than a living organism. And just as machines were built and designed by human hands, the earth was believed to have been designed by God's hands. This religious connection is important to note because at this time in history, people straight up did not believe science. They thought it was sus. It's like 2020, fucking Groundhog Day. 
So the idea that observing nature was a way to understand the work of God became a powerful justification for growing the scientific discipline. Here, science and Christianity supported one another, actually. Scientific inquiry lent a rational support to a Christian view of nature and really the world, while that same science gained social legitimacy from the perception that it was in line with Christianity. One supported the other. And this relationship between nature and God and man was sanctioned by some highly literal interpretations of the Bible. And God said to them, (laughs) and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then this view was reinforced by influential figures of that time. Francis Bacon said, the better we understand nature, the better it can be made to serve us. Science is knowledge. Knowledge is power. Scientific knowledge is a rich storehouse, both for the glory of God and for the relief of human inconvenience. Verbatim quote from our man, Francis Bacon. What the fuck? Okay. Let's backtrack for a second to understand how this shift actually happened. By the 16th and 17th centuries, the tensions between the Western world of colonial expansion and the controlling organic image of nature in popular consciousness had become too great. There was too big of a divide there. The old ideological structures were incompatible with the new activities that humanity wanted to pursue. So something had to give. To bring in Carolyn Merchant again, she has summarized that the image of Earth as a living organism and nurturing mother had served as a cultural constraint, restricting the actions of society. You know, one does not readily slay a mother, dig into her entrails for gold or mutilate her body, although commercial mining would soon require that. And as long as the Earth was considered to be alive and sensitive, It was considered a breach of human ethical behavior to carry out destructive acts against it. But because the needs and purposes of society as a whole were changing with this rise in industry, the values associated with the organic view of nature were no longer applicable. They just didn't fit. And so under the guidance of Francis Bacon and other founding fathers of modern science, the popular consciousness began to shift to consider the possibility of understanding and controlling nature to serve our needs. Nature began to be looked at as both an obstacle to be overcome and a resource to be exploited. This mechanistic view of the world was readily adopted because it encouraged the growth of technology and industry and colonization. The objective was, at this time, to make human societies as independent as possible from the natural world and to make all those in what was perceived as the natural world as subservient as possible to the decisions of the, quote, civilized. It was the mid-1880s And individualism, dominance, control, and progress were the name of the game. And then another influential player entered the chat. More on that after this break.
Act one, done. Let's reflect. History is often taught to us as a one-way street, an unavoidable procession of events. One worldview exits, passes the baton to the next, violence is inevitable, domination and eventuality. Bigger, better, faster, stronger. This is just the nature of things. But that's not really the case. Yes, ideas coalesce into movements and define the realm of possibility in the mainstream consciousness. But there was and is a lot more going on in the margins. What I want to do in this episode is to retell a particular moment of Western scientific discovery and explore what was happening on its periphery. Walking back through history with this critical lens will hopefully help clarify the different paths we could have taken and remind us of our agency to choose. But this means we have to reevaluate the contributions of such founding fathers and reexamine a worldview and a sacred science that, by reconceptualizing the Earth as a machine, It sanctioned the domination of nature, people of color, women, and every culture that didn't align with these Western views. With this lens, I hope that we can then revisit, recover, and reappraise the fate of those other options, those alternative philosophies and social groups that have been discarded and erased by history. And there have always been these alternatives. As early as 77 AD, during the Roman Empire, Pliny the Elder specifically warned against mining the depths of Mother Earth in his work Natural History. He speculated that earthquakes were an expression of her being pissed off at being violated in this manner. Fuck yeah, Mother Nature, I get you. (laughs) He said, we trace out all the veins of the earth, and yet we are astonished that it should occasionally cleave asunder or tremble, as though, forsooth, these signs could be any other than expressions of the indignation felt by our sacred parent. We penetrate her entrails and seek for treasures, as though each spot that we tread upon were not sufficiently bounteous and fertile for us. Never thought I would say the word forsooth. He went on to say, the worst crime against mankind was committed by him who first put a ring on his finger. And Pliny was not alone in this view of the sacrilegious. In other early societies, it was common for minors to perform ceremonial sacrifices, observe strict cleanliness, sexual abstinence, and fasting before violating the sacredness of the living earth by sinking a mine. And smiths of all kind, like metalsmiths of all kind, were accorded the status of shaman in tribal rituals, and their tools were thought to hold special powers. This is to say nothing of the multitude of indigenous cultures, most of which have long upheld the interconnectedness of human society and nature, and the responsibility we bear in that union. Gregory Cajete, indigenous professor, scientist, and author of the book Native Science, emphasized that we should study indigenous sciences and philosophies because they offer new or old and possibly more life-sustaining ways of living. Concomitant with enacting climate change solutions, he says, there must be a fundamental transformation of consciousness, a philosophical and spiritual shift. 
And he says this can come in the form of an indigenous-led eco-philosophy that reintegrates science with values from an Earth-centered worldview, as opposed to an anthropocentric one, which is what we have, a human-centric one. And this worldview, this Earth-centered worldview, could potentially be at the level of holistic integration that has been maintained by indigenous peoples. Just as new forms of life are evolutionary, created out of older forms, so new forms of knowledge and systems of learning must be created out of the most promising spiritual and cultural heritages of the past. unpack more about learning and teaching a new worldview, I chatted with Philippine X organizer, educator, and artist, Kristen Sison, based in Toronto. Um, I wanted to get an understanding of your history. Was the kind of spiritual and holistic lens on teaching and learning, was that always really prevalent in your practice? Or is that something that came up more recently? Like when, when did that kind of come to the surface for you? Okay, so my first my first response to your question traces me back to being really, really little, like elementary school age little, and feeling as though it was my sole responsibility to change the world. Oh. So I'll, I'll say that the work of being in these kind of practice learning spaces where young people are teaching each other again how to remember, mm. um, I can trace the root back to that. I felt responsible as like little baby Kristen to be part of the movement, I guess, towards something different. And and I didn't know what that different necessarily was. And I I knew that those feelings of something is wrong came from a relationship that I've always inherently had with trees. And I've actually always felt this way, but like seeing, you know, like the city workers and their little orange vests um, cutting like limbs off of trees that shit like broke my heart. That stuff, it, it hurt me to see what I perceive to be a disconnected relationship with that tree. Yeah, it, it hurt me to witness that. How there's the little kid that like runs after the garbage man or there's like the little kid who loves the fire truck. You were the little kid who loved the city workers with the trees. No, I didn't love the city work with the trees. <laughs> I, love the I trees. loved the trees and was worried about the city workers because I was like, do you have their best interest in your mind and in your mm. heart? Now I now I kind of understand that it's important to cut off dead limbs and things. But as a kid, in my perception, like it came from that feeling of like, what are you doing? No, the trees. Mm-hmm. But I feel like this holistic picture of really being able to articulate that what we have is a spiritual crisis, like climate change and this moment of climate crisis is a moment of spiritual crisis. Mm. That's That's language that I feel didn't find me until after I graduated from university. Mm. But I feel... I feel like in the past 10 years, especially my work with Conscious Minds Camp, which is where we had an intergenerational learning space where we had elders come in and being able to interact and learn from those elders. Yeah, a resounding message was like this work, this work of change making requires us to deepen a relationship with spirit, which requires us to do inner work, which is like this idea of fractals, like the inner is the outer and and, and our ability to change ourselves is is the work of changing the world. Mm. Um, yeah, I don't know if that answers the question in like a... Um, no, no, it totally did. Uh, it prompts another question for me. So you went to you went to university, but then you also 
I think you said, I think you were 16 when you started at um, Capisana. Capisana, yeah. Yeah. You've kind of written about how that was such kind of an instrumental turning point in you and your understanding of your history and your culture and kind of what you wanted to do in the future. So what I'm trying to get at by juxtaposing those two moments, even though they didn't happen at the same time, I don't think, is like the difference between learning in an institution versus learning in like a more community centered environment. And like, what was it like to learn in both of those spaces and how did they influence each other? Yeah, there's so many ways I can answer this question. But I, when I think of I went to U of T, um, my, I majored in the study of religion. <laughs> so even like the words like study of it's yes. it, it it tells the story of this kind of disconnection and like mm. seeing things from outside or above mm. um and then I also studied philosophy and English I left U of T with this beautiful and very important like critical lens like this ability to take things apart and see the ways that things are not working but in that end our educational systems generally fail to provide us with spaces or the space to think about what else is possible. Mm -hmm. Like there's a, this is how it is. Here's where those, uh, here's how, here's where those systems have come from, like name them history, like date them. But I, I felt very like disempowered and really angry and also just like super stuck in my head. Mm -hmm. And I feel like when we're trapped in our head, we continue to perpetuate the very thing that I feel like I'm trying to unravel, which is, mm -hmm a sense of connectivity mm. when you're stuck in your head, you, 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 it's like you're, you're separate and above other people who don't think the way that you do and from the very world, which holds you. So I felt, I felt disembodied mm. coming out of U of T and community spaces is where I've been able to come back home into my body mm. and come back into relationship with spirit in a way that was really vulnerable because I feel like this act of, decolonization of remembering again, I think that comes with a lot of dying work and it comes with a lot of mm. like really intense discomfort and pain that institution is just not equipped <laughs> to, mm. to, to hold us through the kind of rebirthing work that is necessary for us to do the healing that earth is prompting us to do. So community spaces were very, very crucial in allowing for this like coming home to myself to happen. Yeah, yeah. I want to uh, bring up another thing that you shared. It's a piece of writing from Indigenous Knowledge Keeper Maria Montejo, I believe is how I'd say her name. Yeah, Maria. I love her. Uh, the earth is your body. Your body is your first earth, your first site of reclamation and healing. I love that. I wonder if you could share what that brings up for you. Mm, yeah, Um Shout out Maria Montejo. She's Popti um, teacher, elder, and and I'm so grateful for her friendship and and for the teachings that she has bestowed upon mm -hmm. us and our community. Mm -hmm. um, but there's already a lot to work with. Yeah. And so I think starting there, like starting with ourselves, again has these profound effects, and they, it echoes out into the world. And in that way, like it doesn't have to be as overwhelming as it it tends to be like, then it can be really overwhelming when we're beginning to awaken to all the things that are not working in the world and, and that need to be changed. Mm. Um, but I think there's just this longing for me to emphasize that taking care of yourself and taking care of your community, like your direct relationships is 
so profound and is the work and trusting other folks to show up for their part of the work. Because I, again, like my journey has taken me to a place where I've had to surrender again, drop or let go of this idea that it was all for me to do, because mm. that is a unsustainable way of being and, and led me to really intense death cycles and intense burnout. Um, but another thing that comes up is this phrase that I've been sitting with lately and that I think I feel called to write more about, but it's just this idea that the limit is the gift. Mm. Um, and our and our bodies are limited in themselves. And, and when we allow ourselves to do the work of deprogramming and, and letting things go, like letting outworn old ideas of ourselves and of the world go, just like releasing it from our bodies with grace mm-hmm. and gratitude, we then open up more room again within our limited containers. That is our spacesuit, that is our body, that is our meat sack, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> yeah, I think meat sack is actually the most appropriate. It's super eloquent, I know. It's so uh, poetic. It's, it's it's true though, it is. True. Um, <laughs> but you know, le- understanding that limit and like taking seriously that limit, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and knowing that like we don't have to hold on to everything and that mm. actively letting go is is healing and like then opens up the space for something else, opens up the space for imagination, opens up the space for play, opens up the space for presence. That presence is, is, is the key to everything. (laughs) Mm. The, the limit is the gift is such a beautiful statement because it applies on every level, recognizing the limits of our capacity, the limits of our consumption, the limits of our output, recognizing those limits and actually listening to them. When we pull back, then the natural systems and the natural flow of things and rhythm could actually resume its course, you know, because nature's going to keep going. She doesn't need, she's good. We just need to get the fuck out of the way, you know? Um, But I think also the limit is the gift Act two, 1800s Europe. Where we left off, we had just rounded out our brief look at the story of the scientific revolution and the formation of modern sciences, which has really remained the dominant intellectual framework of the Western world from the 17th century until now. But there is another critical figure, pivotal in defining our understanding of nature that we haven't yet discussed. Enter Charles Darwin. In 1859, after multiple decades of analysis and contemplation, Darwin published On the Origin of Species, which detailed his theory of evolution. To be clear, Darwin did not invent evolution, but what he proposed was a mechanism, a theory of how it works. And surprise, surprise, it turned out to be the same mechanism that governed our understanding of society at that time. Coincidence? I think not. Darwin was, like everybody, a student of his culture. And the harsh environment of the 18th and 19th century England produced some very depressing culture. The storm gathers. Its shadow envelops mankind. It is the eve of cataclysm. History is being written. 
Darwin based his theory of natural selection on the dismal view of Thomas Malthus, who, in his 1798 book, An Essay on the Principle of Population, he argued that the only direction humanity can go is further growth in population that must outstrip food supply and lead to an overt literal battle for dwindling resources. And Malthus was influenced by Thomas Hobbes, who described human existence as the war of all against all. Safe to say there was just some real cheery shit going on in England at that time. What a great place to develop the literal basis of the Western world. Sick. Darwin's theory of evolution was based on this idea of the struggle for existence, which he described as natural selection. Darwin maintained a view of ecology as a world stuffed full of competing species, so precariously balanced and crowded that a new form could only gain entry by literally pushing a former inhabitant out. Kind of like a club at capacity when you have no plug at the door, you gotta wait for someone to leave to get in. Doesn't she know who we are? Who are we? But unfortunately, clubs were not like the predominant ecological metaphor in the mid-1800s in Europe. So Darwin expressed this view with the metaphor of the wedge. Nature, Darwin writes, is like a surface with 10,000 wedges hammered tightly in, filling all available space. A new species, represented as a single wedge, can only gain entry by forcing another wedge out. Success, in this vision, can only be achieved by direct takeover by competition. The wedge metaphor is, in my opinion, pretty intense, but it is important to note that Darwin developed his theory of evolution in the Galapagos Islands, which, for reference, are roughly the same size as the New York metropolitan area, but are home to 9,000 species, making it one of the most biologically diverse places in the world. Darwin found strange and wonderful beings, the like of which were to be seen nowhere else. I honestly didn't spend enough time to figure out the real number of species in New York, but like apart from the Bronx Zoo, which has, fun fact, about 6,000 species, you gotta bet there's like a hundred different types of subway rats and that's about it. The point being, Galapagos is fucking tiny and has a lot of living things on it, all competing for a finite amount of resources. So in this specific geographic location, at this specific time, competition was the name of the game. It's a harsh and merciless world out there on the Galapagos lava. But should Darwin have generalized competition as a rule for the entire world? Debatable. Okay, I digress. So Darwin publishes his theory, it's rooted in struggle, but then Darwin's slightly misguided disciples take this idea even further. Enter Thomas Huxley. Thomas was described as Darwin's bulldog and said he was prepared to, quote, go to the stake if requisite to defend the evolutionary doctrine. Unnecessary, but okay. Huxley argued that any human society set up along these lines of nature will devolve into anarchy and misery, and that, therefore, the main purpose of modern society must be to mitigate the struggle that defines nature and rise above it. So basically, nature is miserable, study it, and do the opposite. Huxley's point of view won many supporters, as it matched the intensity of the times. 
And it was ideas like these from Huxley and others that coalesced into what became an unfortunately quite predominant wing of Darwin's followers, known as social Darwinism. Social Darwinism is now understood as a variety of theories that apply the biological concepts of natural selection and survival of the fittest to society through sociology, economics, and politics. Social Darwinism has gone on to be utilized as the basis for laissez-faire capitalism, racism, eugenics, fascism, Nazis, and more. It's important to clarify that social Darwinism and Darwin's theory of evolution are two distinctly different things even if society didn't always see it that way. If aggression was natural, so was war. The specific way Darwin's theory and social Darwinism caught fire has to do, in part, with the way it fit into the dominant worldview at that time. 19th century Europe was taught to believe that competition and struggle for power is what makes the world go round. So they interpreted the ecological world in that same way. What we seek, we find, if we try hard enough. While many agreed and disagreed with this view, there was, at the time, a third solution presented that saw nature through a different lens. Not quite a rejection, but an alternative worldview. The most famous expression of this third space was presented by Russian aristocrat-turned-anarchist Peter Kropotkin. What was this other idea? Who was this mysterious man? We'll find out after the break. Act two, done. So let's bring it back to the goal here. We started out with this big question, attempting to define what the outdoors even means and how we got to this definition. So far, I've been plotting the impact of the scientific revolution and one particular discovery, the theory of evolution, as a way to show how this view of nature was adopted into society as a result of multiple converging interests. My purpose here is not to criticize the internal content of Darwin's theory of evolution. If there was any concern, I do in fact believe in evolution. Rather, my intention is to give an account of the unintended consequences of its impact, the human and non-human costs of a dominant paradigm that names lethal competition and domination as the only way for our world to grow and change. This worldview meant that nature was wild and bad and only became productive and good when manipulated by white humans for economic gain therefore cementing a very specific white human-centered exploitative relationship with nature as the norm and implicitly ignoring or stigmatizing every other mode of engaging with the environment. So here's an example of this from the podcast How to Save a Planet with Dr. Ayana Elizabeth Johnson. We have these beautiful national parks that have been literally outlined by white colonizers as a place to go experience nature. But we don't see nature as part of our existence. We don't see ourselves as part of an ecosystem. We see the ecosystem as a thing over there to go drive to on the weekends and be a part of as we see fit. So this sanitized and secular view of nature is unable to account for the ways in which our environmental footprint 
has resulted in not just fewer trails to run or mountains to climb in some distant place over there, but in indigenous land dispossession, poisoned tap water, lack of green space in our cities, increased chronic illness, climate refugees, and food deserts in our own backyards. Our scientific revolution and the application of these ideas is destroying the planet. And so how can we effectively create climate solutions without a complete understanding of the problem? As Thomas Berry said in his excellent Ethics and Ecology essay, with this limited worldview, we find ourselves, quote, ethically destitute just when, for the first time, we are faced with ultimacy, irreversible closing down of the Earth's functioning in its major life systems. Simply put, the Western wisdom of the past is inadequate in the present. So, where do we go from here? Maya Anton is a member of the Squamish Nation. She is also the creator of the nonprofit Indigenous Women Outdoors, based in Vancouver. As an avid biker, hiker, and camper, Maya spends a lot of time outdoors, but with a different mindset. I chatted with Maya to learn more about how wisdom passed down from her ancestors shapes her relationship with nature, and how everyone else can also learn to find their way. I mean, I guess I can start by going back to my childhood in the sense of I grew up in Squamish, um, but I did not grow up very outdoorsy at all Mm. in a very like, I don't know, I guess kind of like colonial sense of like skiing and biking and like I didn't do any of that as a kid Um, and I have quite a few siblings Um, there's four of us and we're all within five years of age so we're all very close Um, so my kind of connection to nature growing up was just being outside with them like with my siblings um, I remember making forts in the forest and looking for like robin eggs and getting bee stings like that's my that's my connection to nature growing up and and then moving into university um, I studied environment. And so, you know, you really learn these systems of of connection and that reciprocity that nature already has that humans have destroyed in some ways and have wrecked. But, you know, nature is always there for herself and she's always restoring herself. And mm. um, there's so many beautiful connections that she has. Um, and then learning my language, it was the most amazing eight months of my life. I yeah, studied Squamish Snechum for eight months, um, which is the Squamish language. And we did it in a setting where we actually don't speak English in our classroom. So we learned wow. Squamish in the Squamish language, which is kind of cool. That's so and cool. We learned American Sign Language, ASL, at the same time so that Amazing. we could communicate our wants and needs in ASL. And then our instructors and teachers can tell us what we're trying to say in Squamish and then answer in Squamish. So wow. I haven't just learned like a language and how to express myself in a language, but I've learned a whole different worldview than what I was brought up in. So mm. it's just kind of added this whole other layer to all of it. And it's like reciprocity is built into our language and it's built mm. into this natural system that we live in and forgiveness is built into the system. And our whole concept of time as Chotmish Stalmoch is so different than a colonial concept of time. Like I don't even have a grasp on it. 
our word for really far in the future is the same word for really far in the past. And mm. um, it's just such this beautiful system of give and take that is always there and has always been there and will be there after humans are long gone. That's amazing. I want to talk for a little bit about something that you've written before. I would love for you to to read it out because I think it would be great to include a recording of it in your words. But you this talk one. about kind of this idea of playing in the outdoors and, and mm. a lot of people asking you about this like perspective that I think is obviously very settler, very colonialist, uh, seeing mm. nature as something distinct from us and something mm-hmm. to conquer or something to it's over there and we're over here. So I'd love if first maybe you could read um, read this caption out and then we can chat about it a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yes. <clears throat> so I've been asked a lot about my thoughts of playing and the outdoors. In today's world, You always have to give a disclaimer, so I want to say that I am no expert on the subject. And these are my thoughts, but take these words and hold on to the ones that make sense for you to hold on to today, but let the rest of them go away for someone else to pick up. When I go skiing or biking, I don't go to play, per se, but I go to get outside and connect with my land and the trees and the plants that I find in the forest. I don't go around calling my backyard a playground And I don't go to disconnect myself from Mother Earth by conquering a mountain or a peak. I go to remind myself that I'm part of nature and that I'm no better or no worse than the animals I run into or the plants that I see. When I'm outside, I am constantly speaking to the land, trees, air, and the language that they know. Sometimes I know I'm the only skier or biker out there that day that can speak to these living beings in a language they understand. Now this isn't to say I don't have fun. Some of my favorite memories and when I'm the happiest include powder soul turns, cheering on friends and whooping and hollering down a trail. But for me, this idea of playing in the outdoors and calling a mountain a playground erases the history of a place. Your playground is a space where my ancestors used to travel to pray or to cleanse. This notion of playing erases your responsibility to take care of the land. This notion of playing allows you to extract and never give back. Words are powerful and think of yours wisely. Thank you so much for (laughs) indulging me and reading that. Um, It's even better hearing it from your words. Oh, um, I would love to to just dive in a little bit into like why why you wrote that and and what do you hope to teach them? Just kind of expand on the ideas here. Um, I guess where it kind of comes from is, like I said, I didn't grow up skiing or biking or doing or climbing or doing these sports. And as I'm getting older and I'm getting into all of those sports and I'm yeah, I bought a mountain bike and I'm, you know, going up the mountain and coming down and skiing. It's hard to sometimes feel connected to the other people who are doing it. And I find a lot of times in these sports, you know, people want to get the line. They want to get up as fast as they can. They want to get the shot. And so um, it's been kind of hard to connect with everyone in these sports because that's not why I ski or snowboard. And honestly, when I am out there doing all these things, like I'm typically pretty slow because you know, I'm taking my time. I love being in the trees. When I go mountain biking, like I stop and I pick medicines and it's just a lot slower of a process for me than other people who, you know, want to get up to get down. Mm -hmm. And so it's been, yeah, kind of hard to connect with the outdoor industry because 
all these ski videos and climbing videos, everyone wants to be the first person to summit this peak. And, Mm -hmm. you know, that's what the grants are for. It's for this crazy expedition. Like, what does the word expedition even mean? Like, why are you getting out to have this expedition on someone else's territory? You know, it's, it's kind of heartbreaking in a lot of ways. And so, so many people travel to my territory to do these things. And now that I'm getting into them, I understand why people love them here because getting into biking and climbing, I've been able to see parts of my territory that I've actually have never seen before. Um, that's really beautiful. But I just do these sports for such a different reason than mm. most people. Um, and I'm finding my community and I'm creating that space in an industry that doesn't really want us to be there. Mm. Um, but to share a little bit of my thoughts is just a way to show people why I'm doing the things that I am, why I started a nonprofit to get more Indigenous folks outside and just share a little piece of who we are as Squamish people to this outdoor industry that has taken up so much of our territory mm. and so many of our ceremonial um, and sacred sites. On to our third and final act. By the late 1800s, the idea of competition as the key to progress had been adopted throughout society. However, as I mentioned before the break, there was a third solution brewing in the margins by my man, Peter Kropotkin. Kropotkin was a Russian noble born to a wealthy family in Moscow in 1842. At the tender age of 12, he was already about that eat-the-rich lifestyle, and he relinquished his noble title of prince. He then attended military school, joined the army, and served in a regiment for five years in the harsh climate of Siberia. Just as an aside, we'll only do a summary here, but this guy has a truly bonkers life story and was apparently just a lovely man. Oscar Wilde called him, quote, a beautiful white Christ, which is wild. (laughs) (laughs) Anyways, let's continue. Stephen Jay Gould, the famed author, biologist, and historian of science, in an article with the telling title, Peter Kropotkin Was No Crackpot, summarized what happens next in Kropotkin's scientific adventures in Siberia. Quote, There, in the polar opposite to Darwin's tropical experiences in the Galapagos, Kropotkin dwelled in the environment least conducive to Malthus's vision. He observed a sparsely populated world, swept with frequent catastrophes that threatened the few species able to find a place in such bleakness. As a potential disciple of Darwin, Kropotkin looked for competition, but he rarely found any, end quote. Instead, Kropotkin continually observed the benefits of cooperation in coping with the harshness of Siberia that threatened all species. And the beauty of these observations could not be reconciled with the Hobbesian or the Malthusian vision of existence as this brutal war. Alongside this, Kropotkin was reading works by prominent liberal thinkers that mirrored this emphasis on cooperative behavior, but in the social realm. And it was these readings, along with his experiences among peasants in Siberia, that compelled Kropotkin to finally become an anarchist. Later, Kropotkin's father would disinherit him for disavowing the military tradition by resigning from the army and returning to St. Petersburg to study. But 
Committed to the vision, Kropotkin continued to work and spread anarchist propaganda and lead organizing campaigns among peasants and workers. Those efforts landed him in prison, and though he escaped in 1876 like a badass, by 1883 he was a political prisoner again. And it was here, during his second confinement, that he developed his arguments about evolution, which had been brewing since his time in Siberia. Between 1890 and 1915, in a series of essays, Kropotkin argued that species can organize and cooperate to survive the pressures of a natural environment and ensure their future survival. In 1902, the first eight essays were brought together in a book entitled Mutual Aid, A Factor of Evolution. Yay! An account of mutual support in action across plant and animal societies, indigenous cultures around the world, medieval city-states, and among modern humanity. In Mutual Aid, Kropotkin begins by acknowledging that he does agree with Darwin's principal theory of struggle as a key mechanism for evolution. But he then goes on to challenge the idea of struggle as a singular vision, clarifying that he felt it must be divided into two fundamentally different forms. The first form of evolution, which is what Malthus and Huxley championed, is the struggle of organism against organism for limited resources. But a second form of struggle, as Gould summarizes in his Crackpot article, pits organism against the harshness of surrounding physical environments, not against other members of the same species. In this form, for example, organisms must struggle to keep warm, to survive the sudden and unpredictable dangers of fire and storm, to persevere through harsh periods of drought or snow or pestilence. Kropotkin goes on to say that these forms of struggle between organism and environment are best waged by cooperation among members of the same species, by mutual aid that their cooperation may overcome a threat beyond what any individual could achieve on their own. To be clear, Darwin had acknowledged that both forms of evolution existed, but part of Kropotkin's argument is that Darwin's loyalty to the intellectual doctrine of the time and his personal bias after observing competition in high-pressure environments, like industrial Britain and the vibrant Galapagos Islands, led him to overemphasize the competition part, and largely ignore the power of collaboration. And, as Darwin's theory got swept up into social Darwinism and preached to near-militant exclusivity, Kropotkin was like, y'all really just lost the plot. These thinkers were, in Kropotkin's view, not only misguided, but dangerous. because their ideas were invoked by capitalists and authoritarians as justifications for a brutally competitive society, rigid hierarchies, and grotesque levels of inequality and exploitation. It's these values that have survived from the scientific revolution until today. Act three, done. Okay, so while Peter Kropotkin became one of the most famous anarchists of his day, his arguments on the importance of mutual aid as an ecological, social, and political framework were largely dismissed. This is likely an unsurprising end to this story, as community organizing has repeatedly been shot down or squashed throughout history by a winner-take-all view of things. But... 
mutually supportive frameworks have and will always exist, and Kropotkin was far from the first or the only to champion them. For millennia, indigenous epistemologies, while incredibly diverse, often have this central tenet of kinship and responsibility at their core. In this sense, and in so many others, indigenous wisdom predates Western disciplines, which are very young in their understanding of these deeper levels of relationship. And the benefit of this type of eco-philosophy is obvious. Even though indigenous lands represent less than 22% of the world's area, and indigenous people 5% of the world's population, their territories currently comprise 80% of the world's remaining biodiversity. 80%! Hell, even while Peter Kropotkin and the Darwinists were fighting about evolution, the Underground Railroad was well underway. A perfect example of a network of people cooperating to liberate themselves from struggle and oppression. And in more recent history, mutual aid was present in the 70s when the Black Panther Party started a free breakfast program which within its first year was feeding 20,000 children in 19 cities across the country. And these are not just relics from our past. 2020 saw a resurgence of mutual aid in cities across the United States and around the world, proving once again that sacrificing the individual benefit for the good of the whole is an effective way to create progress. Ashley Thompson is a tribal member of the Red Lake Ojibwe Nation and is currently completing her PhD in Anthropology and Indigenous Archaeology. She is also a runner, biker, and hiker and is currently living in Tucson, Arizona. Ashley has shaped her learning journey to prioritize deepening her understanding of Indigenous knowledge systems. I spoke with Ashley to learn more about how Indigenous science, economy, and philosophy could guide us to a better future. I should say like, so I'm a tribal member of the Red Lake Ojibwe. My mom is Ojibwe. My dad is white. And so I was raised by my white grandmother most of my life. Mm -hmm. Um, And so when I returned to college in Minnesota, I started taking American Indian studies classes. And I was, I guess, kind of introduced to my own people's worldview, which was kind of funny because I always knew I was Ojibwe. And you know, I knew that that was a unique part of my cultural identity, but I don't think I really truly understood what that meant until mm-hmm. I like started returning to the community, being around Ojibwe people, speaking the language and hearing about like our traditional values and that sort of thing and really connecting with them as mm. an adult. And now I'm really fascinated by like different ontologies and epistemologies um, as like a PhD candidate. Part of my comprehensive exams, like I hold, I had a whole question on indigenous philosophy and how it differs from other philosophies, mm. even like learning about it through books and like research. It, it has really changed my perspective of the world. One question that has been posed to me is, do you, do I believe that we can change our worldview? And I say yes, because mm. I, my world, my, in fact, my own worldview has shifted as an adult. Um, mm. That's beautiful. And also super interesting. That was like 
a question that I, that I had for you was our capacity to change. Um, but before we get to that on like a macro level, um, I was wondering if you could kind of expand on what was that like to be simultaneously, uh, learning in like a, in a colonial setting in an institution, and then also having this kind of more experiential community driven, like hands-on embodied process of learning happening at the same time. One thing I've come to understand is like, I can, access a lot of knowledge via books and academia and classes. But for me, some of the more influential parts of my learning journey have been more um, relationships and hands-on experiences that I've created on this journey of um, like growing into myself. And one thing about indigenous pedagogy is this understanding that experiential learning is a really valid and basic form of indigenous knowledge systems and that mm-hmm. relationships form, form our world. And whether that be relationships to each other, to the land, um, to other beings like animal or relative plant relatives. And so I, I appreciate all of the academic knowledge I've gained over the last 10 years, but I, I really yearn for more hands-on relationship building experiences. And I've really tried to build them, um, into my own research. There's certain things that books can't teach me and I've come to terms with that. And that's a long answer for that question, but, um, yeah, there's the definitely disconnect between the two knowledge systems, in my opinion, and both offer something. But I think to truly understand indigenous ways of knowing, you have to use um, indigenous ways of learning too. How do you feel about the kind of weaving together of like colonial knowledge systems and indigenous knowledge systems? Like I sometimes feel, especially right now in like the thick of all this research and like just feeling very existential, I'm like, just throw everything colonial out, throw it all out and like, let's start again with everything indigenous. But what is, what are your kind of thoughts? I frequently think about these sometimes contradictory like ways of knowing or politics. And I think that settler colonial institutions are often based in Western value systems of competition, individualism, profit, white supremacy, to be honest, and capitalism. And I think that those are all serving humans and not all humans, but like a select few, mostly white, mostly wealthy, you know, the elite of our society and indigenous forms of governance and worldview are totally opposite of those sorts of values. Whereas Western society champions individualism, indigenous society champions community-centered mindsets. One of us is not well if all of us aren't well, if you know what I mean. And so I dream of the day when we can all look to indigenous culture, teachings, values, and worldviews and kind of transform society as we see it. I think there's a lot of people that are guided by our indigenous values and worldview and organizations and tribal nations, which I think is really, really great. Um, And I really, I dream of the day when we can, when indigenous leaders can lead and not just indigenous people, but like those values to guide our world again and to guide North America again and Turtle Island again, because not too long ago, This land had only indigenous people here and the land was better taken care of because of that. 
But as in terms of Western knowledge and indigenous knowledge, I've studied this, like the differences between native science and Western science, whereas indigenous people look at phenomena through a really wide lens and you look at systems rather than parts and you see how things are interconnected and how relationships build the world. Um, Western science tends to zoom in and look at things on a micro scale. I think it can be good. Like I think Western science and indigenous ways of knowing really do complement each other. So I, I don't think we need to throw out everything Western or like, you know, but I, I think that they can work to complement one another. It becomes problematic, though, when there are certain values that champion humans over the rest of the earth and our animal and plant relatives. That's when the issue comes up is when when our values are hurting the earth and each other. Like you can apply it to like science, you can apply it to economy, like traditional economies are way more about relationship building and reciprocity, whereas like capitalist economy is all about competition and individualism and accumulating wealth. Indigenous societies measure wealth about like traditionally, at least about how much you could give away, not how much you could accumulate. And in an indigenous society, people like Bezos and they would they would never even have the opportunity to get that wealthy because that wealth would be redistributed to the community. I honestly believe that shifting our worldview to indigenous values could solve a lot of problems we see, whether that be the climate crisis is a huge one that I'm always thinking about or even social problems. Yeah. Um, indigenous societies, we take care of our community members. Mm. On this topic of kind of uh, the multiplicity and the different ways of viewing things and how in the contradictions kind of within that, I want to return back to one of the original things that you had said in the Arcteryx panel that really prompted me to dive deeper into this area. The question or the kind of series of questions you posed were, what is public lands? Who are they public for and at the expense of whom? Um, but I'd love if you could kind of expand on those ideas and share more about where that thinking came from or, or what it brings up for you, just expanding on those ideas in general. Public land to me is more of a myth. It's kind of like the Thanksgiving myth or any sort of the Columbus Day myth where there's this alternative truth that Americans like to ignore. And that's the genocide of indigenous people. It's the stealing of indigenous land and the continuing dispossession of indigenous peoples to their lands. And so being in the outdoor recreation scene as a runner and a climber, I'm kind of like in both of these worlds. I'm mm. in like the indigenous world and seeing, you know, issues of protecting water and land from the native perspective. And then I see a lot of outdoor recreationalists that are also, you know, in the sphere of interested in protecting the land. But there's a lot of talk of public lands and public land stay. And it really makes me cringe, especially um, if there's no acknowledgement that the public lands are indigenous lands. My friend Lydia Jennings, she's a soil scientist and she's a native. She's Yaki. Um, she recently just said something that really stuck out to me. She said that indigenous peoples are not stakeholders, we're rights holders. We're, we're a step above stakeholder, I would say, mm. in terms of connection to these lands. These are indigenous lands and they create our oral histories. They create our contemporary knowledges, um, our spirituality, our languages, our food, like everything is dependent on the land. Um, 
And so I think like outdoor recreationalists appreciate the land and we all have common goals of protecting it. But um, I think a lot of these protections need to be native led and native people need to be like, not just like it's beyond stakeholding. It's, it's kind of like, um, it's, it's rights. <laughs> While Peter Kropotkin's argument for mutual aid was largely ignored in his time, the importance of altruistic relationships has become an accepted and even influential idea in recent decades. There is now an entire subdiscipline in biology devoted to the study of cooperation in animal and plant species, as well as scores of anthropologists, political scientists, economists, and psychologists who publish hundreds of studies each year on human cooperation. And influential activists, anarchists, and abolitionists around the world, like Miriam Kaba, preach mutual aid as a crucial everyday practice. I've been pretty hyperbolic in my critique of the scientific revolution in Europeans in general, partially just because it's fun to do. But I want to bring us back to the moral of the story. The content of these early scientific ideas, just like the invention of different technologies, are not inherently bad. The danger of Western science is the lack of wisdom in its application. Our short-sighted and humanistic view prevents us from seeing the impact of our actions in the context of the whole planet. As Thomas Berry says, the integral Earth community with all its human and other-than-human components, all of which should be considered equally. It's here, in the philosophical and spiritual basis of our worldview, that we should step down off our pedestal. In Native Ways of Knowing, as Kimmerer says in Braiding Sweetgrass, human people are often referred to as the younger brothers of creation. Indigenous philosophies say that humans have the least experience with how to live and thus the most to learn. We must look at other species for guidance. They've been on the earth far longer than we have been and have had the time to figure things out. So, in 2020, as we face a much belated reckoning with the fundamental worldview that has shaped institutions and systems till this point, I believe it would be helpful to remember the teachings and teachers among us that embody a more tender and integrated worldview. Because it's these collaborative frameworks, Adrienne Marie Brown says, that show us that adaptation and evolution depend upon critical, deep, and authentic connections, like a thread that can be tugged for support and resilience the quality of connection between the nodes and the patterns. So, in the critical race to save our own lives, we should look laterally to one another, both human and non-human alike, and remember the words of Kimmerer one last time. All flourishing is mutual. This episode was written and produced by me, Sydney Allen Ash, with copy editing from Nicholas Yim. All our design work was done by Marvin Lau. And this episode featured amazing nature soundscapes from the wonderful people at Landa Conservatory and music by Jacob Rochester and Young Clancy. 
Thanks for listening.